This Architecture podcast is sponsored by Adelaide. Remember where's Waldo? He was 100% viewable, but still awfully hard to find. Your digital ads are like Waldo. Viewable, but in a sea of distractions. You need to move beyond viewability. Adelaide helps brands like Mars, Audi, Colgate, and the NBA measure media quality and drive better performance by optimizing campaigns programmatically with attention data. Adelaide's metric, AU, is available at nearly every major DSP and SSP, making it easy to leverage attention metrics. Get a free Waldo was viewable t-shirt at adelaidemetrics.com slash Waldo. Welcome to the Market Texture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined by Eric Franchi and our special guest today, George Ivey, CEO of Media Rating Council, not the Media Ratings Council, Media Rating Singular Council. George, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ari. So first, um, news and information. So I wanted to highlight that Marketecture TV with our vendor interviews has had a number of really interesting interviews you should check out if you're a member or you should join. We had a interview with Pinterest about their ad products, which was very enlightening. And just this last week, we had Scott Knoll, who many people know from his days at IS. He has a new venture-funded roll-up called Guideline. They acquired Squad, which is a pricing database company and some other ad tech, martech research companies. It's very interesting what they're up to. I'd recommend it. For those of you who are not aware of our publishing strategy, these audio-only interviews go live on our podcast feed every Monday, but they only stay there for a week. If you want to listen to the bulk of them, you have to become a member at Marketecture TV. All right, enough of the promo. George, let's talk about Media Rating Council. What, what do you do? I think everyone's sort of aware of you. I feel like I've been in ad tech for 20 years, and most of that time I've just been trying to convince you that my measurement was accurate. So tell us about your role and what you do, what the company does. Sure. Well, we sit in the middle of the ad research and measurement ecosystem. We're a small not-for-profit association. And all we do is concentrate on the accuracy and transparency of media measurement. And the way we do that is we set standards for how media should be measured of various types and various metrics. And then we conduct audits, very rigorous CPA audits of the companies that measure media to determine that they're in compliance with our standards. All of that is in an open process with the members of the MRC. We have about 175 member organizations. You would recognize almost all of them. And it's actually a growing group that's even more and more international in nature. And they convene around these audits and help us make decisions based on the CPA report about whether companies are in compliance and they merit accreditation. So that's basically what we do as an organization. We we render the industry good housekeeping seal, really, which is our accreditation logo around measurement, quality, and transparency. My understanding is you don't set the standards for how you should measure things, but then you audit that companies are meeting those standards. Well, we set standards for practices, controls, how metrics should be calculated. Very often, for example, we are the people responsible. You know, in the old days, Ari, when you and I used to work together, we set that viewable impression standard, and we told people very precisely what the parameters were around that that viewable impression. And so we do 
become prescriptive with certain things, but we don't prescribe methodology. Because tomorrow somebody might measure, you know, invent a new way to measure things, and we don't want to have a chilling effect on innovation, but we do want consistency in reporting and transparency in how certain things are calculated. And we all want these processes to be well controlled, have good internal controls around them. So let's talk about innovation. Suppose I came out tomorrow and said I had a new way of measuring ads. You know, attention, for example, is very popular or carbon usage, Big. very popular. How would I get MRC certification for something brand new? Well, if, if it's the case of I can give you a very specific example. For example, sure. we were approached we were approached by Double Verify, which is a vendor in the in the space an ad verification vendor a lot of people know. And they had read our outcome measurement standard, a standard that we issued, probably the most recent standard that we issued maybe about less than a year ago or so. And they saw in there that we had codified an approach for measuring certain types of attention metrics. And they said, we'd like to do that. So can you audit us? And we want to seek accreditation for these attention metrics. They actually asked for accreditation. They formally documented with us what the metrics were. And then we agreed and we conducted an audit based on that content, that standard. And we were able to accredit this attention metric at Double Verify, but it's what's called a proxy metric. So it's not like eye tracking or some, let's say, biological metric, brain waves, galvanic skin response. There's a lot of ways of measuring, you know, attention physically. But what Double Verify did was they they had collected a number of passive metrics around ad consumption. Did was your cursor being moved? Did you click on something, etc.? And they were able to say, well, we can gather some proxies that there is likely some attention there by a person. And they presented that. That was codified in our standard, and we were able to accredit it. And that's how the process worked, after an audit. So you're not saying that they're right, that these things are good measurements. You're just saying that they're measuring them the way they say they measure them. Well, no, we do both. We, we make sure they're transparent and that they, you know, do what they say they do, as you phrased that, Ari. But we also look at things as to whether they're fit for purpose. So in this case, we actually believe that metric moves the ball. It, it, you know, if you accumulate these passive metrics, as long as you don't say this is definitive attention, it's not. It's not, you might use the word deterministic, but it is increasing the likelihood that there is attention. We forced and made sure that Double Verify explained that well that it's not definitive, that it is accumulation of metrics to do that. Now, I don't want to just concentrate on double verify, but everybody works the sure. same way. They just come to us. They make an application. We seek out whether we've standardized things around that. And if we have, we can execute an audit. And if we haven't, that's good messaging to us that maybe we need to set a standard and work on that. What What's the VIG here? Like, if I'm going to say, what do I have to pay you? What does it cost me? Like, because, you know, sometimes I hear, and I hope you're not offended by this, George. Like some people are like, oh my God, I have to do this MRC audit. Oh my God, this is gonna be a real pain in the ass. I need to I need to get my uh things together. I gotta pay them a fee. Uh, George is gonna show up at my office with a bunch of accountants and it's gonna be an issue. 
Yes. Yeah, so, well, it's it doesn't turn on a dime. It's a it's a big process. Let me just say, it's a rigorous it's called process. an audit for a reason. Yeah, we audit we audit for a reason. It's rigorous, and we audit some very high gravity things. There's billions of dollars traded on some of the things that we audit. Think about we audit Google search. We we audit you know display video 360. We audit Google ads. We we audit. You know, we audit Nielsen, we audit Comscore. These are very large syndicated processes for measuring that are used for transaction purposes. A lot of people trade on them. So this is not just, you know, sprinkling spooky dust on something and saying it's okay. We audit it. We descend on these processes with CPAs based on an audit scope that we develop as an oversight organization. We review the CPA reports. Yes, we will descend on you with CPAs, and we'll do that. However, let me just address a couple of things you mentioned. Number one, the MRC makes no money on an audit. We don't charge a fee. We don't charge anything for an audit. The sole charge from MRC is CPA time. So we engage the CPAs, the MRC does. A CPA, we're the talking service, about certified public accountants, not cost practice. Yes, they're bean counters. So we, we engage CPAs. They go out and they conduct the audit at our direction. It's rigorous. It's real testing. And they report back to our audit committee of our members who then decide whether that product meets accreditation based on the compliance noted in the report. So... We don't make a fee off of an audit. The CPAs charge time. And we, we audit things more intensely that have more gravity. We audit things less intensely that have less gravity. If they're a smaller product, if they're an emerging product, we don't have to necessarily audit them as hard as the Nielsen National Television Rating Service or Comscore. Or, or you've got new people entering the fray, like a video amp that wants to compete with Nielsen. Well, we have to audit them on the same basis at Nielsen, because if they want to jump into the game with the big guys, they should have a good process. So that's how it works, basically. So you're teeing up one one of the most interesting topics going on right now, which is this TV situation. So there's a jick that we've talked about previously on this on this podcast, and the jick is evaluating vendors, making recommendations, doing things like that. What is there a relationship between the MRC and the jick, or should there be? We do different things, and right now there's, I mean, we we speak to the JIC. We especially speak to OpenAP, who's at the center of the JIC. It's a vendor at the center of the JIC. Because one of the things is OpenAP might be audited by MRC eventually, as they're because they're creating a data accumulation process to give the data, first-party data from publishers to the measures. That's not finalized or formalized yet, but we're in some discussions. But however, we don't participate on the JIC. What the JIC is doing is it's creating a system around the release of first-party data to measurement vendors. And it's different than it used to be because this is actual first-party data coming in from streaming publishers, and that has privacy risk. And so if I'm going to turn my first-party data over to somebody, I should have some kind of program to understand how are they going to use it? What's the chain of custody of that data? 
what's the context that that data is going to be presented in? If they're going to present it right next to YouTube, is it going to be differentiated? So they have certain objectives that they're putting forward with that JIC. MRC doesn't do that. MRC focuses on auditing and accrediting measurement methodologies. So we we live in a world that's somewhat symbiotic with the JIC, but we're not part of the JIC. And one of the reasons why we're not part of the JIC is we might need to audit what the JIC pulls together as a data infrastructure to supply streaming. So we want to be independent from that process. Do you follow? Yeah, so you're letting things settle. The JIC will do what it does. And what comes out of that may require new standards and new audits. Yeah, and this is actually no different. So if you look at YouTube, YouTube has a program, YTMP, BSRP or something. I might have the acronym wrong, but it's basically a business partner qualification program. If you're going to be using and have access to Google YouTube data as a third party and you're going to go through ADH and get that data and process it, they want to qualify you. That's a certification by Google. That's no different than a JIC certification here. And by the way, that term JIC is thrown out, and I know they call themselves a JIC, but if you look at how JICs, what they are and how they operate, this is actually not a JIC that's been formed here. It's pronounced GIC, actually. So let's talk Nielsen. <laughs> funny. I, <laughs> it's, my, I, it's the 10th time I've told that joke, but I still think it's funny. I worked at Nielsen for an unpleasant six months. You work with Nielsen probably very often. I'm not going to ask you if it's pleasant or not. But I will ask... So here's my, this is the story I'm telling, which may, you tell me if I'm right or, or not. Like, how many tens of years ago, the MRC was essentially created at the behest of folks who felt like Nielsen was getting too powerful and needed some auditing. And now, 30, 40 years later, they lost their certification on some of their measurement. I think it was a local measurement, lost its certification. And it was a very much like a you only had one job situation where, you know, Nielsen is a measurement company and losing its certification was pretty embarrassing. Is that story true or is that not what happened? Let me fill in a, a couple of things. MRC was formed because of some weird turns of events in the late 1950s. The most notable one, Ari, which you might remember, is a quiz show scandal that happened in the right. late 1950s where large television companies... It. They did. They made a movie about it. But basically, they were perpetuating contestants on the quiz show. They would win a lot of money. That would create audience buzz and increase their ratings, and they could charge more for their advertising. It was leaked in a really ugly public way in the New York Times one day. It caught the attention of the U.S. Congress, who said, why would somebody do that? And they started a six-year investigation called the Harris Committee Hearings. By the way, there were measurement services that went out of business at the time because during the hearing, the Congress found out, for example, it was they didn't gather data. It was just a bunch of old guys sitting around a table talking about which rating, which shows they liked best. They were it was fraud. So legitimate companies survived and they applied for accreditation. And there were four companies that applied for initial accreditation. And actually, Nielsen was one. And so MRC's been auditing Nielsen since 1964. That's a lot. Nielsen time. lost their accreditation, and they lost their accreditation because of they were dealt a very significant blow by the pandemic because a lot of their methodology is manual. They have to install meters in households. They have to go out to those households, service those meters, etc. 
And they couldn't do it during the pandemic. So as a result, their panel, which I'll say roughly is 42,000 households, fell to 32,000 households or something like that. And that's not random turnover. That was people that need their set repaired and meter repaired or people that moved and whatever. And they couldn't replace those people because they couldn't recruit new people. So we found that the ratings were suffering because of that. And we have one job in life, as you mentioned, to tell people whether a service meets our standard or not. And at one point, and it was a difficult decision for MRC, we had to say, we're removing Nielsen's accreditation. So we did. Yeah. You know, vendors vendors often pile on. I actually got in trouble once, you know, a long time ago because I was in a competitive battle with iBlaster. And I made some comment on Twitter about that I didn't really care about iBlaster's MRC certification. And the iBlaster people just roasted me, like, you know, basically retweeting. It was, it was, it was a big pile on. But that's just a very boring story from my career. Uh- <laughs> what, what the situation did, Ari, is it really opened up a period of time of about two years where we didn't have any accredited service in television measurement. And there were a lot of new entrants out there that took the opportunity to put their products forward. So it's kind of changed the playing right. field. So much is going on, just speaking of, of Nielsen, with uh, Nielsen competitors and startups and established companies like you know, wanting to create and trade on new currencies and you know, evolve the, the measurement space. How, how much time is the MRC spending on that? And wh- wh- what do you see going on in that market now and in, into 24? This, I believe, is going to continue. MRC is spending a lot, a lot of time on this, Eric. We not only write stands around things. So one, stepping back for a minute, one of the big things that's happening is the area of cross-media measurement is emerging as really being principally important. So not just measuring television on, you know, on the traditional glass, but measuring everything around it, how people are consuming videos on different things, mobile devices, CTV you know, all all kinds of ways of consuming video and measuring that and trying to me- measure that on an equalized basis and report on it. And advertisers want that. Agencies want that. They want that in a powerful way. They don't have that today. If today I want to run a campaign on television, on CTV and on YouTube and on Facebook, I got to rely on different silos to capture that information. And there isn't an accredited product that would capture that information. So everybody's racing there. That's where they are. That's where VideoAmp is. That's where iSpot is. That's where Nielsen's trying to race. I don't know if you've heard of a product they're seeking to introduce called Nielsen One. And everybody's racing towards that. We've written a cross-media measurement standard, and we're open for business to audit that and encouraging companies to come to us. The big thing about that is it's different. You can't just do that with a panel. You've got to get first party data, you got to get big data sets, you got to get different types of things. You got to learn how to filter for invalid traffic and fraud, which didn't exist in legacy TV, etc. So the game's changed, it's widened, it's gotten more complex. We're on top of it with standards and auditing processes, but the vendors need to come in and coalesce around getting validated. Uh, while, while you were talking, I looked it up. The name of the movie is actually called Quiz Show. I think it was with Tom Hanks, or I think he may have directed it. So 
definitely worth Netflixing or uh, buy on Apple TV. Um, so, George, I have one last question for you. Like, personally, you've been doing this a long time, like 20 years. It, yep. Are you the face of the MRC? At some point, do you retire and we need to bring in some some new young buck or lady who wants to audit people? And what's the what's going going on here? Yeah, well, I I uh, you mentioned I've had a long relationship doing these audits. Um, I did my first MRC audit in 1983, so that was four. <laughs> what was years. it on? It was on a Nielsen Diary product. Okay. But we we audit more companies than that. Today we audit more than a hundred measurement products. We audit platforms. We audit ad verification. We audit CTV. We audit Hulu. We audit all kinds of things. So, so it's broadened. When I came to MRC January first, two thousand, I was their Y two K event. When I came to MRC, they didn't have a computer. They didn't have any standards on digital. This is in 2000. So the board came to me and said, we need to get into digital auditing. We need to get into standard setting. And that's what we've been pursuing. And that's what we've done. And it's not just George. We have a team. We're a small organization. We only have six people. And by the way, we're looking to hire a person. But that's a little plug. Yeah, yeah. Send your resume to George. Yes. We have an excellent team. The people underneath me who really do all the work and all the brain and heavy lifting, there's a guy named Ron Pinelli, who's probably the heir apparent to MRC. The guy's a genius. You know, working with Ron, we have a lady, Luis Oliveri. She's also very prominent in thought leadership. Ron and Luis have just worked with IB to put together, for example, augmented reality measurement standards. If you're going to go online and try on a pair of eyeglasses, you know, and you see ads and stuff, we're writing standards around that. So this is we try and stay on the edge of this stuff. Uh, Yeah, because I think a lot of people in the industry just know you and they think this is a boring subject and it's like, you know, auditing Nielsen over and over again for 50 years. But I think you put it really into perspective about the work you guys do and how it's, you know, staying on the cutting edge about things. Speaking of. You know, there's a there's a there's a whole ad tech ecosystem that listens to the pod and you know sort of is, is in is in our world. At what point is an ad tech vendor like large enough and significant enough to warrant you know exploring MRC accreditation? Because it is a process. It's resource intensive. It's costly. So if you can walk, you know, the listeners through that, many of whom might be candidates, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah. So first of all, you have to have a product. If you're totally development stage and you don't have anything in production, you're you're too early to come to MRC. We only accredit production things. However, also, if you're used in trading, if you're used in pricing, advertising, that should be the first indicator that you might want to come and talk to us. If you're some kind of ancillary measure, maybe that's of lesser significance. But if you're used in trading and pricing, you should be speaking to MRC, even if you're small, because we can work out small audits. We audited a little measurement service that measured Puerto Rico television, and that audit was like $40,000. Now, that was a few years ago, but we can price audits at different levels based on what it is and the significance of it. But trading is the key, you know, when things are monetized. The other thing is, if you're trying to win large advertisers, you go speak to P&G, you speak to Unilever, Ford, GM, 
you know, Bank of America, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, those are all members of the MRC, and they're highly likely to ask you if you're MRC accredited. So if you're an ad tech vendor and you're moving into that space to appeal to those kind of people, you should start talking to us because you're going to get questions about has your process been validated? Are you transparent, etc.? So those are kind of the triggers, trading, monetization. If you're at all involved in brand safety, you really need to come and talk to MRC because it's very complex and people are going to want you to be audited. So those are some basic things. Very helpful. Well, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about a lot of news in the media world. This is a message from our sponsor. I'd like to introduce you to Publica by IAS, the award-winning CTV ad server trusted by some of the biggest streaming services and smart TV manufacturers globally. Publica helps a growing number of leading AVOD and FAST services to power the programmatic ad break decisioning via products, including a unified auction, server-side ad insertion, and a demand-agnostic ad server built from the ground up around streaming. Head to getpublica.com to find out how they help CTV publishers to grow their advertising revenues and provide streaming audiences with linear-like TV ad break experiences. All right, we're back. So Blockbuster Story came out this morning, just absolutely game-changing, in that Simo Media appears to have won its little spat with OpenX, and the OpenX TV product is no longer called TV+. Plus. It's called TV by OpenX. Game-changer right there. My question to the OpenX management, and you can reach out to me as you'd like, what was wrong with TVX? It was right there. You got an X in your name. Just put it at the end of the TV. TVX. I don't know. TV by OpenX is the resolution of this major issue. Congrats to all involved. Congrats as to I, all as involved. I said, <laughs> as I said when, when, we, when we first talked about this, the next step here would be extremely costly and painful litigation and... Even blinking first is a is a win from my perspective. You don't want to go you just there. Don't want to. Again, congrats. Last week, we talked about X and their move to uh, small business advertisers, and we had some really good conversations about how auctions might work, how they should lower their prices. This week, there was a report in the Wall Street Journal that they are, X is looking to partner with Pubmatic or Amazon as a way to spur this SMB sales. Previously, there was an announcement or some speculation that X was partnering with Google for demand. So Amazon kind of makes sense. I don't know if Amazon has previously partnered with anyone to make their ad tool compatible with other systems. I don't even know what ad tool they're talking about, if this is their product listing ads, or it's kind of unclear what that means. And Pubmatic is kind of a head scratcher as well. Eric, any any thoughts on this? Anyone want to read the tea leaves on this? Yeah, there, I mean, the, the article is in the journal. There wasn't a lot of the original article in the, in the journal. There wasn't a lot of specificity around these conversations mm-hmm. or, or theories, particularly on the on the pubmatic front, you know, I could always, you could always imagine a scenario where, you know, there's ways to, you know, drive programmatic demand with a, with a partner. I think the Amazon thing is interesting because Amazon has so many SMBs. So if you can figure out a way to unlock some of this, you know, just like unsold supply, plug in Amazon SMBs, plug in, you know, some of the the commerce products, I think it would be interesting. But at the end of the day, I think there's a bigger issue here, and the guys from Market did a great job last week on articulating it, which is there needs to be a ad product that works and right. that you know is is sort of engaging for for SMBs and has the auction environment and, and and all that stuff. I don't know if X can fully 
partner their way into this without some of these like foundational first principles things being addressed. George, uh, you mentioned Google a number of times in this conversation. Are all of the major what we would call walled gardens audited? Does X and Snap and TikTok and all of those? I'll give you a brief rundown. We audit Google pretty extensively. We audit their measurements, their ad serving, their search. We audit YouTube brand safety. So there's a ton of audits that go on between us and Google. There's like more than 15 audits, I think, something like that. There's a lot of audits that go on between us and Meta. It's less than Google right now. But one thing is that Meta's really turned the corner with MRC. They're doing more and more, and they're working with us more and more positively. We used to have a very tense relationship with Meta. You can imagine when we did things like viewable impressions and you're cycling through the Meta news feed, you don't get that many viewable impressions because people go through that very quickly. So they were pretty combative with us at one point in time, but they've calmed down and have been working with us well. We audit Amazon. You know, We audit quite a bit at Amazon in terms of their search and click counting and their sales functions through their platforms. Other platforms, we do less. Pinterest, Snapchat, we audit their basic impression measurements. Uh, We don't audit anything, nothing, at X. They've totally stepped away from our auditing. Nothing is audited at X. Interesting. And we've been begging TikTok to come forward for an audit for a few years. They also had nothing audited. But the good news there is recently... They've been engaging in conversations with us and want to start some auditing. So that's a great move by them. And then one last thing I'll mention, we because it's kind of B2B almost, we audit LinkedIn. So those are some of the key platforms. It, it seems to me like a pretty big mistake if you're a platform like X or TikTok to not at least get impression auditing, because ultimately you're billing people, you're sending bills I totally to, agree. to advertisers based on those numbers. A bunch of news stories that are more media-oriented than ad tech, but I think they're worth talking about. Cherry Redstone is considering selling Paramount. So Paramount is, I'd say, probably the smallest of these large media companies. I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but they're, compared to Discovery and, and the other ones, a bit smaller. They have the smallest streaming footprint. Paramount Plus is probably is kind of at the bottom of the charts generally. And uh, it could be interesting that they could be snapped up by somebody, Comcast, whoever, as part of that. There's also some really interesting insights from, I want to say, I, I'm trying to remember which newsletter I read it in. So I forget who, who was saying that the Discovery deal when they bought when they bought Warner Brothers was has a two-year lockup because of tax reasons. So once that's over, which is coming up relatively soon, that company can also do some interesting things that they're not allowed to do until two years goes by. Such as Brian Morrissey, but it might not have been. What can they do after the the, the two year period? They could sell the company. They could split the company. Gotcha. They could, you know, do a lot of financial maneuvering. They're not allowed to do for tax reasons. Gotcha. Gotcha. What if uh, what if Amazon bought Paramount? Because Paramount is smaller, right? But I think they've got like a good catalog, and there were some exclusives that you know basically you were you were boxed out unless you're a Paramount subscribers. So there's probably real value there. I mean, it seems to me that an Amazon or 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 someone, you know, that's sort of like digital first and forward leaning, that could be super interesting. Yeah. I mean, Amazon got some antitrust scrutiny on the MGM deal, which was smaller. So the antitrust is always looming. 
but I do think a lot of these traditional media companies would be interesting for someone in, who's more digital first. Another media story, not sure if there's an ad tech angle here, is that Google lost its antitrust suit against Epic, the makers of Fortnite, and that antitrust suit was about the checkout process, the Google Store, and requiring payments to go through them. Previously, Epic had lost a similar suit against Apple. This could potentially enable or require Google to have multiple payment options for apps. I think there is a little bit of an ad tech angle here around attribution. If you think about the way Apple has has locked down attribution to using their SCAD network protocol, in this case, if you were using a different checkout vendor, potentially you could do closed-loop attribution, and that could be a, a spur of some innovation if Apple was required to do this. I'm sort of speculating. This is one of those Eric Suford questions where I just have to like dial up the bat phone and find out what, how mobile advertising actually works by calling Eric. You know, interested in George's perspective, how do you think at all about mobile attribution and how Apple affected it? Did that did that take some people off the table for you in terms of audit and accuracy? It definitely takes people off the table. Things are getting way more complex. For example, we used to audit four location vendors. So people, you know, companies that measure location of users on the Internet, very widely used that business has been completely constrained and kind of decimated by the privacy regulations and some of the lockdowns that have happened by the large vendors i'll call them you know they're not measurement vendors but people like apple and google with cookie deprecation and all this stuff so there's all these things happening mrc we're putting tremendous energy behind trying to figure out you know, how to perpetuate measurement and be compliant with these standards, these privacy standards. We're not combative with those. We don't want to fly in the face of those. We encourage measures to comply. They have to comply with these. But in the U.S., this is getting complex with different state regulations. In, you know, Europe, they've been very aggressive for years, and it's something that's changing the face of measurement in a huge way. Are you getting calls or assignments to deal with the privacy sandbox? Is that impacting the way people are delivering and measuring ads? Or is that something you're going to have to deal with later this year? It's something we're going to have to deal with next year. Later, later. But we are getting calls. In fact, we're getting calls to speak on the topic. We're getting calls about how this might impact measurement. The press is speaking to us. Measures are speaking to us. Strangely enough, some of the platforms are speaking to us because these platforms are so big, you know, they might have ad serving functions and then they have other functions like, you know, the face of their platform, UI and everything. These silos sometimes don't even talk to each other. And we're sitting in the middle of it, pretty well positioned with some understanding of it. We're getting calls from the associations too, trying to say, well, can you help us with a webinar for our constituents about what this is? If you're an advertiser, how should you be thinking about privacy sandbox? you're an agency how should you be thinking about this that's happening too put that on your uh, 2024 to-do list in addition to understanding the sandbox implementing sandbox you have to get re-audited probably yes but according to mr simmons from the trade desk it's not that big of a thing yeah let's talk about mr simmons from the trade desk so bill simmons willard simmons he wrote i don't want to call it a screed because it was very polite bill is a very polite person it was a 
it was a blog post, let's just say that, that compared the privacy sandbox to the moon landing in unfavorable terms. The sandbox did not come off as good as the moon landing, which I guess is a tough comparison. But I, his point was, I think, I think his point was, like, this is, what are you doing, Google? Like, this is really complicated. You miss the opportunity to actually innovate. This is big hairball. And I'm going to give my perspective here, which is I spent about two hours. I know it's not a lot of time, but two hours with the co- my former co-founders at Beeswax. We had a whiteboard. We had the sandbox documents up. And we're just going through the basics. Like, how does this actually work? And I have to say, I left that session not encouraged. I, I left that session sort of discouraged that it was such an absolute rewrite of every single part of ad tech that I just could not believe the risk and complexity and unintended consequences that might be unleashed by this thing. Now, I know other people have been testing it and love it, whatever, I get it. But I think we're we're on the cusp of a pretty big sandbox backlash occurring. I still think it will be rolled out on time. That's just the end of my little my little speech. Yeah, there's some there's some chatter across what, you know, X and, and LinkedIn about is this signaling TTD, you know, really not being supportive of of Sandbox, which I think will be, you know, the interesting thing to watch yeah, next I, year. I, I, I can't see it. I think on the one hand, I've been thinking, trying to game theory this thing out, which is does the Sandbox really need the majority of the participants in the industry to accept it or could an individual company that accepts it and uses it just benefit on their own and everyone else can ignore it. And I think it is possible. I don't really believe they need widespread acceptance for it to actually happen. And there'll be sort of a cost to not accepting it because in certain scenarios, it produces a lot of lift, right? Retargeting being the most obvious one. The wild card is if the Competition Markets Authority in in the UK listens to some of these complaints and blocks it or does something unusual, which is possible. Like, is this a conversation that you see entrepreneurs caring about? No, less less on the startup side, more on, I think, scaled companies that are, I think, you know, in that category of, hey, if we are the first one to adopt this and make this work for things like retargeting, we can get a real leg up against the competition. I think that's where a lot of the focus is. I would love to personally hear from any startups that are engaged in the sandbox. I would. I think there are opportunities here, and I'm trying to figure them out. Next news story, Ross Levinson out at the Arena Group. So he was the CEO of the Arena, Arena Group, which is the owner of Sports Illustrated. This comes a week after our friend, friend of the pod, Andrew Kraft, left his job there. Andrew is our guest next week on the podcast, so we're going to get some tea. We are going to find out what happened. So we don't know really big one. if the question is about this AI debacle where they had fake articles written by fake journalists. Bar, I, I have a quote here from Brian Morrissey who says, the obvious conclusion is to draw a straight line, but the reality of business is a crisis is a terrible opportunity to waste. It could provide cover for the new owner to unload a bunch of expensive execs with his own people. So Brian being cynical is saying like that, the guy who took it over, who is the founder of Five Hour Energy Drink and apparently has a visceral hatred of PowerPoint, that if you show him PowerPoint, he will drink a five hour energy drink and whack you on the side of your head. He is now in charge of Sports Illustrated. Good luck. Sounds great. We're going to find out a lot about this next week. <laughs> All right, next. Um, <laughs> Perion acquires Hivestack. So Perion is one of the highest, uh, highest achieving public stock, ad tech stocks. They really took off as soon as they got rid of some overpriced executives for some of their previous acquisitions. 
people know. If you know, you know. So um, anyway, they bought, for $100 million, they bought a company called Hivestack based in Canada, 154 employees, and they do digital out-of-home advertising. Interesting that M&A is coming back, that digital out-of-home is coming back. Eric, you want to take a stab at thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. I mean, Perion is, is building, I think, a, a, a cool holdco almost of, you know, on the surface, they're disparate assets, right? They've, they've got undertone. They've got a, a video business called VitaZoo. They've got a social platform. They've got a bunch of different assets that, you know, you could be you know, sort of like operating on a standalone. But I think increasingly with assets like this, digital out of home, you can start to connect them to, you know, other things. And you'll probably have some some real synergies there from a client offering perspective. So they, um, they've, they've been doing great. Eric, you wanted to talk about the Axel Springer deal? Do you want to? Yes. Yeah. I have to talk about AI every, every. It's Eric's week. AI so... corner. We should have a little, little theme music. <laughs> Please do. I love to hear what that music is. So there was an announcement, I think it was yesterday, where OpenAI for ChatGPT is going to start incorporating real-time and you know non-real-time results from the Axel Springer portfolio of companies within their search results. So currently, if you're not on a premium version of ChatGPT, so if you're like on ChatGPT 3.5, your results are dated, I think, effective like 2022. So it's not that great for, you know, anything like news related, particularly over the course of the, you know, the past year or two, or even real time. With this deal, they're going to be start bringing in, you know, re real time news results from, you know, places like Insider, and then, you know, the other portfolio companies. I think what's interesting here, and people are making this a, a, a big thing, like this is going to change everything is presumably there's some licensing happening of this data, i.e. the thing that we've talked about, I think a couple of times over the course of the past year, you know, publishers, particularly in, in Europe, want to be paid for their news being delivered in, in search results. My sense is that's happening as part of this deal. Whether this is a cool pilot that's going to be, you know, a one and done for both companies, or this is a signal of things to come, with OpenAI, that's TBD. A lot of folks are getting really excited about this being the future of, you know, what's going to save publishers. I, I don't know, but I think it's super cool. And, you know, yet again, just like more pressure coming at Google from OpenAI. Nobody expected this. There was also an article this morning that I didn't put in the show notes in the Wall Street Journal about publishers essentially freaking out about Google's new AI, uh, showing a dramatic reduction in the number of clicks because it's summarizing the news of linking to it. But I could definitely understand exactly. that. Exactly. I, and I agree with you entirely that, like, the question is what happens next. This is an interesting data point, but we need to see a trend line of, of what publishers do with this stuff. All right. Well, I think with that, we've got a show. So, George, thank you so much for being here, giving us a ton of perspective on a subject a lot of people don't know about. No problem. And I really like the news conversation. That was fascinating. Thank you. And Eric, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you for subscribing to Architecture. New interviews are added every week at Markitecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.